uh, this is Shafine Shakespeare again, and this week we're doing As You Like It. As always, I am Julia. And I'm Liz. And we're excited to talk some more gender-bending comedy with you. Liz is going to get us started, as we usually do, with a quick summary of the play. Life is unexpectedly hard for Rosalind. Sure, she's a rich and beautiful noble lady living in a palace with her uncle the Duke and her hot cousin Celia, but her dad is the actual exiled Duke, and the only reason her uncle hasn't killed her is because Celia would kill him if he did. Life is tricky for Orlando, too. His brother Oliver keeps him poor and uneducated and is even plotting to kill him. When Orlando and Rosalind meet, it's love at beleaguered first sight. Then things get even more complicated when Rosalind's uncle banishes her. Undaunted, Celia decides to run away with her. They disguise themselves, Rosalind as a man, and abscond with the Jester Touchstone into the Forest of Arden, where Rosalind's dad, the real Duke, has taken shelter from his brother, along with a loner named Jaques, who spends half his time moralizing and half making fun of people. Running away from Oliver, Orlando gets to Arden, too, and nails the worst love poetry in the world on the trees. Still disguised as a man, Rosalind promises she can cure him of his love by pretending to be his lady and having him woo her. Celia's not that thrilled, but the plan takes off, up until bratty Phoebe the shepherdess ignores her dogged suitor Silvius and falls in love with boy Rosalind. Fed up with the disguise and everyone's stupidity, Rosalind unmasks herself to the joy of Orlando and her father and the era-appropriate horror of Phoebe. Oliver has a random change of heart and marries Celia, the usurping duke also has a random change of heart and gives his brother back his dukedom, and the play ends with a literal quadruple wedding. So weird. So fucking weird! Such a weird play. So much stuff happens in this play, but also nothing at all. I realized when I was trying to put the summary together, as I told you, that there is no plot. Yeah. And the scenes are weirdly short a lot of the time. Yeah. With Shakespeare, often you'll get some short scenes, but then some really long ones that like get into the juicy bits and the meat of the story. But because there's no meat here, it's just this like really fractured, fragmented narrative. It's a much more character-driven play than we're used to seeing from Shakespeare. What there is of plot is over in the first act. Right, because even the conflicts that you kind of expect to come to a head at the end of the play, as they would I think in any other drama, they just disappear. As we will get into later in this episode or next. No doubt. Not to say that there isn't stuff to talk about with As You Like It, because there definitely is, and just to go into a few of the key ideas in the play. So, as with most of Shakespeare's comedies, As You Like It turns the world topsy-turvy and creates a space for the audience to explore questions of gender identity and sexuality, expressions of romantic love, the nature of families, and whether it's better sometimes to make your own, the subversion of social boundaries, and how we change as individuals. Like Twelfth Night, it is one of the festival comedies performed at the end of Elizabeth the First Reign, and as such, it also deals with inversion and subversion which can be safely investigated within the artificial construct of the play. As You Like It specifically uses the form of the pastoral to upend social norms. Our characters depart a more structured urban life and find themselves and love out in the woods away from their restriction. You know, things like who gets to wear pants and whether it's cool to declare your undying love for someone you just met. Rosalind, like Viola in Twelfth Night, has the opportunity to tutor her lover and how to treat her before they get together, such as the benefit of cross-dressing, according to Shakespeare. Also, like Viola, Rosalind finds herself the subject of same-sex attraction when Phoebe falls in love with her as Ganymede. Kind of a pseudo same-sex attraction, but still, we can talk about it. In that way, sexuality becomes the central theme of the play. And yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. There are a lot of possible pairings, so I think we should dive right in. Let's do it. As per usual, we'll start with the canon ships. There are a lot of these. I honestly wasn't sure I'd gotten them all when we were listing them. We've probably missed some. 
Tell us the ones that we missed on Twitter. There's too many people in this play. <laughs> there are. It's a little bit hard to care about everyone, which is, yeah, we'll get into that. But for now, let's start with the obvious one, which is Orlando and Rosalind. Absolutely. Insofar as the play has a plot through line, it's their relationship. They're all right. They don't actively bother me in the way of some other canon couples. The closest comparison, I think, is to Viola and Orsino, and they're certainly not as problematic. They're both decent people who mean well and spend time with each other in a fun, playful context. Right. And the fact that their feelings for each other are immediate and mutual is an interesting change for Shakespeare. Like, there's nothing unrequited in any of this. They're both kind of immediately obsessed. Which is kind of sweet. It's a nice difference. I was thinking about how many plays there are where that's not true or where they're not very honest about that, whether they feel that way or not, like Beatrice and Benedict, right? I was just thinking of them. But then, you know, you also have Viola and Orsino, and that is obviously unrequited or at least seems unrequited for most of the plays. So this is just really upfront and straightforward. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's not very shippable. <laughs> Well, the interesting thing about it is because it is so sweet and upfront, there's no suspense. You know right away that they're both into each other and that the other one knows. So all that remains to happen in the play is for them to somehow get together. You don't need a prolonged courtship. You don't need this back and forth, do you love me, do you love me dance that a lot of Shakespeare's other comedy couples have. There's this instant connection and the rest of the play is the two of them trying to figure out how to capitalize on that. Right. I mean, there are a few kind of arbitrary physical obstacles, but it's not to the degree that you see in like Romeo and Juliet, for example, where there are a lot of physical obstacles that are very real. Or even in Twelfth Night. True. True, true, true. Like other people and their feelings are involved, but here nothing's really interfering. Even though Rosalind is briefly exiled by her uncle, there's nothing keeping Orlando in court. Like, it's not like he is beholden to anyone, really. They're both weirdly free to do what they want. Which is interesting and unusual for Shakespeare and very emblematic of this play in particular. Part of the point of this play is to remove the social structure and see what highly socialized people do when they're turned loose. Right. And it's weird because it's not like they go at it. They end up constructing this weird, like, other artificial relationship. I've seen it played to varying degrees, right? Like, how much Orlando suspects that this is really Rosalind. It's Rosalind, who's by far the more courtly of the two who, who starts the game. Orlando is probably the least courtly person in this entire cast who doesn't actually come from the Forest of Arden. He's got this sort of innate nobility, but as he points out in the monologue that opens the play, he hasn't gone to school. He has no money. He's been kept at barest minimum by his brother, and his only confidant is the old family servant, which is kind of interesting to think about in the sense that that untutored innate nobility is what captivates Rosalind. That's true. That's true. So she sees him wrestling Charles at the beginning of the play. He's probably also really damn hot, too. I was gonna say, it's probably a pretty sexy moment. I've seen it staged that way a few times, where, you know, shirtless and sweaty. I mean, if you're not doing it that way, why even have a wrestling scene on stage? It's a fair question. So, yeah, obviously not a bad-looking guy. Uh, Rosalind, of course, herself is beautiful. Though able to pass very convincingly for a boy. Yeah, that's kind of always the question about the cross-dressing heroines in Shakespeare, though. Like, how convincing are they? Or how pretty are we thinking boys are? One of my favorite lines in Twelfth 
night is when Sebastian says that Viola was called beautiful, though it was said she much resembled me. It's just like, okay, Shakespeare, I see what you're doing. Yeah, like, point taken. But, you know, Sebastian also very pretty, right? I mean, bless. <laughs> What's interesting is that while you can point to some thematic reasons for the play for Rosalind to fall for Orlando, his reasons for falling in love with her are much more superficial. As you put it out, right? He's not the most experienced or worldly guy. No. The best Orlandos that I've seen just kind of play that up. That he means well and he's incredibly exuberant and he doesn't know shit. Right. And just earnest. You see that in the terrible, terrible poetry too. Oh, God. That's how you know Rosalind is actually in love with him because she doesn't run away in horror after reading those poems. No, Celia is the one who clearly wants to barf. Well, Celia has many reasons. <laughs> it's going to come up. Don't worry. Like we'd leave it out. No, we, we never, ever would. Okay, does that establish Rosalind and Orlando? for us pretty well. I feel like we don't have that much to say because as couples go, it's not that interesting. I mean, again, there's not really any conflict except the stuff that they create artificially. Yeah, they get to play at this courtly thing, but it's not real. You do raise an interesting point in that how much Orlando suspects what Rosalind is behind her disguise is a matter for interpretation in every individual production. Yeah, there are a lot of things you can play with actually here, which is probably why it's a fun play to see, if not necessarily to read, which we were kind of talking about earlier for the podcast. If he doesn't suspect at all, then we're into Orsino territory. And if he does, then it's interesting to think of Orlando spending all this time with Rosalind and kind of picking up from her the ins and outs of manipulation. Because he has that scene, their last wooing scene, where he says, I'm pretty much done with this. I can, I can live no more by wishing. If he's earnest and doesn't suspect, then it's just, you know, him being sad and heartfelt and just wanting to make a clean breast of it with this cute kid who he's been goofing around with. But if he suspects that she's in fact Rosalind, then he's very successfully taken a leaf out of her book and sort of forced her hand by making her reveal what she's been keeping hidden. Well, that's a really nice point. Like, obviously, there are degrees to which you can play Orlando as a little bit savvier or naive, depending on what themes you want to bring out in the play. And to be perfectly honest, any Orlando that can be played savvier, I think should be, because it is damn hard for any character in this play to be worthy of Rosalind, let alone a cute little earnest nobody like Orlando. Yeah, this isn't quite a classic she's too good for him, because there's really like nothing wrong with him in the same way there are things wrong with Orsino or Hamlet, but she's definitely too good for him. <laughs> she's smarter, she's better born, it's, it's everything. It is not Rosalind's fault that she's better than everyone in the play, but she's better than everyone in the play. So anyway, I'm all in favor of any extra savviness and worthiness that can be given to Orlando because kid needs it. They all need it. I mean, same. Also, I think that probably the more interesting read, ultimately, obviously, if you think that he's just going along with this and playing with this kid, then there's maybe more sexuality we could talk about there. But I, I, I kind of prefer it the other way for once. As You Like It is similar to Twelfth Night in the sense that both feature cross-dressing heroines teaching their lovers how to behave with them. But unlike Twelfth Night, As You Like It is not that interested in questions of more fluid sexuality. No, it, it's strange because what Forest of Arden uh, represents this, this kind of liminal space where you can kind of be whoever you want to be but no one seems to go that far afield in terms of sexuality or even gender expression. The closest it gets is when Celia tells Rosalind she's been talking shit about women for no good reason. <laughs> I love Celia so much. 
<laughs> Celia is the one who deserves better. She does. Okay, actually, yeah, great segue, because Celia ends up with Oliver, and I have so many problems with that, and oh, we God. will get deeper into them in Sink These Ships next week, but what the hell, man? Well, in order to make Oliver a viable romantic partner, you basically have to character assassinate him. Right. He starts out as this tremendously terrible person. He's not even just an asshole. He's just a bad person. I mean, he's plotting against his brother. He throws his lot in with the evil Duke. I mean, there are no redeeming qualities to this guy. And then he shows up in the woods, again, off stage. And what happens, Liz? What even really happens? <laughs> I mean, in the barest plot sense, what happens is that he sees Orlando twice save him from being killed by creatures of the woods and has a change of heart and realizes what a shit he's been to Orlando. But it's a little hollow. A, because we don't see it happen. And B, because it comes right the fuck out of nowhere. Right? At that point, I had pretty much forgotten Oliver was even in the play. Yeah, I think we all do. We're all like super into the cross-dressing hijinks. Yeah, it's more fun. And the, you know, band of merry men with the exiled duke out in the woods. Yeah, that's some good stuff. Like, come on. And then Oliver shows up. We don't see him. And suddenly he's a better person and worthy of Celia, which is just not the case. And no. <laughs> Even if he had had some sort of like epiphanic moment from the divine, it would not be the case. No, no, you you gotta try to be worthy of Celia. Indeed. And you have to be a lot smarter than any of the men are in this play. You basically have to be Rosalind. Yeah, funny how that works. Go figure. But yeah, no, Oliver Celia is the ultimate Shakespearean pair the spares moment. And who knew that something could be worse than um, Sebastian and Olivia? I mean, they get a scene together. Sebastian and Olivia actually get stage time where you see them interact. It's brief, but it feels like a whole goddamn act compared to what Oliver and Celia get. Also, you know, we're pretty sure that Sebastian is not a horrible human being and he's definitely a hottie, so he has that going for him. Right. The scene in which we find out that Oliver and Celia are now a thing is Oliver and Orlando coming on stage and Orlando basically being like, dude, what the fuck is going on with you? Who even are you anymore? Can I trust you? Are you just pulling my leg? What the hell? And Oliver's like, no, 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 it's all okay. I'm fine. Just be happy for me. And Orlando and the audience are just like, well, okay, guess we have to be. There's no real time to think or feel otherwise in the moment. The ending of the play happens so fast. Yeah. It's a quick conclusion. But yeah, no, serious case of Pair the Spares and an annoying version of that. Touchstone and Audrey get more time together on stage than Oliver and Celia. I know. You root for them way more. So let's talk about Touchstone and Audrey. Yes. So uh, if you don't remember, Touchstone is the court fool. Shakespeare loves a fool. And Touchstone's a pretty good one. Anyway, he goes into the woods with Celia and Rosalind when Rosalind is exiled and meets a lovely shepherdess, right? Some kind of rustic pastoral, possibly of loose virtue woman. Country lady. Her name is Audrey. She seems pretty okay. Audrey is basic. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't get a lot of lines, so there's that. I think Phoebe gets more lines than she does. Yes. It's kind of doubly weird to me because Touchstone hates being in the country so much. Bitching. 24-7. Celia's exhausted. Rosalind is trying to cheer everyone up, and Touchstone is just like plots down on the grass being like, I hate my life. And everything here. Yeah. He's, he's not a country dude, so it's really really funny to me that he takes up with this country woman. Though certainly not intended to be permanent. 
No, but one of the four marriages, right? It's true. No, you kind of do get the sense that this is to pass the time. Why not find a, a nice lady to boink while you're waiting for all the hijinks to wrap up? The weird thing to me about it is that there's all this talk between the two of them. When you see them on stage, it's because they're talking about getting married. And Touchstone says flat out to the audience, I don't want to be married by someone who knows what he's doing because then it'll be harder to divorce her later. I just wind up being a little bit confused why he's going for marriage if her morals are already questionable, as at least he insinuates. Maybe they're not as much as he wants us to believe. Maybe he wants to marry her more than he's letting on. That would be the generous interpretation, right? I don't think that's true. No. It seems to work against this young man, William, who's also in love with Audrey because there aren't enough people in love with random women in this play. That's the cool thing to do. To have a bunch of dudes just pining. So badly. Pining so obnoxiously. So badly. Yeah, William's not any better at it than, than Orlando is or than Sylvius is. Like, they're all terrible. It's purely a name similarity thing, but I do kind of get a kick out of the idea of maybe Shakespeare having played the William character. Little cameo for himself. There's some school of scholarship that thinks he played Adam, which is sweet, and which would have made sense because he gives Adam that really lovely big speech right the fuck out of nowhere. But he was certainly also never one of the great tragic or comic actors. The parts that tradition attributes to him are the smaller, more interesting bit parts, like the ghost in Hamlet. It just tickles me to think of him having written himself into the script being kicked around by the clown. <laughs> right, as this extra lovelorn guy. I have absolutely no proof to back this up with, but it tickles me. Excuse me, we're a fandom podcast. We don't need proof. That's true. Fine. It's a headcanon. Deal with it. There you go. I like it. Okay, so that pretty much covers William and Audrey. Even Audrey, little as we know her, deserves better? She does. I don't know anything about her, but just knowing all of these assholes, I'm going to say that she deserves better. She seems pretty gullible, too, and I just kind of want to like give her a hug and then buy her a nice dress. Oh, I was kind of read her as just playing along, but maybe not. I mean, you can certainly play it either way. She's written blank slate enough that an Audrey can be anything the actress wants her to be. Which I guess is kind of fun in itself. But, you know, if she's a lady as such loose morals as Touchstone is implying, then she knows what she's doing, is my read anyway. My most interesting headcanon for Audrey is that she knows exactly what his game is and keeps insisting on marriage so that by marrying him, she can move up in society. Go, Audrey. Get in her paper. <laughs> Where does that put us in this laundry list of weird pairings? Let's talk about the fucking worst triangle in this play. Sylvia, Phoebe, and Rosalind slash yep. Ganymede. Ganymede is Rosalind. Yeah, because that's subtle, by the way. Right? Like, oh my god. Rosalind. Honey. I'm going to dress as a guy and to make it really clear, I'm going to name myself after Zeus is fuckboy. Yeah, that seems about right. Bless. You gotta love her. It can't be a mistake. She's Rosalind. She knows what she's doing throughout this entire play. It was exactly, like, if there's a, a central idea to As You Like It, Rosalind knows exactly what she's doing. It's as she likes it, okay? <laughs> yes. Oh god, yes. Anyway, so yeah, as Ganymede, Rosalind attracts the attention of a young woman named Phoebe, who already has an aspiring beau, I guess, named Silvius, who is as lovesick over her as Orlando is over Rosalind, and William is over Audrey, because we needed more of that. But Silvius is a special case. Because Orlando pines from a distance, and William only ever comes on stage once, Sylvius doesn't let Phoebe fucking breathe. 
anywhere she is, he is. And there's no reciprocation at all. Like, she obviously hates him. Even when Orlando is pretending that Ganymede is Rosalind, he doesn't get anywhere near the obnoxious levels that Sylvius does. Like, he's cute and a little horrified that she could behave irrationally. And a lot of that, too, is the fact that Rosalind herself is guiding the scene. But even so, Orlando engages with her as a human being, and Sylvius sees her as nothing but an ideal, even when she's right fucking there. I've seen scholarship about this that says Sylvius is Shakespeare mocking the idea of courtly love that we see in Shakespeare, but also in Petrarchan sonnet. So this idiotic idealization of the woman where she's no longer a person. Obviously, we've seen this before, right? It happens in Twelfth Night, although Ursino isn't nearly as bad as Sylvius, I would argue. Yeah, I would definitely agree with the interpretation of the parody of the Petrarchan lover, particularly in the um, the litany of what love is in Act 5, Scene 2, when Sylvius is the one leading that call and response. It is to be all made of sighs and tears. It is to be all made of faith and service. It is to be all made of fantasy, all made of passion, and all made of wishes, all adoration, duty, and observance, all humbleness, all patience and impatience, all purity, all trial, all observance. Barf. Who fucking wants that kind of love? Yeah, no, he's he's the worst. And the fact that they get a satisfying ending, oh, we will rip on this hard later. Like, we're going to sink that ship with every cannon. But it's so upsetting because it really is the romantic comedy trope that if a quote-unquote nice, and I'm definitely using my buddy ears here, guy is persistent enough, he will win the object of his affections, whether, you know, she's into it or not. Which is not to say that Phoebe is a prize. No, because that is... <laughs> other half of the triangle is her attempted wooing we'll say of Ganymede I mean she's a brat like even before she tries very clumsily and hilariously to woo Ganymede yes Sylvius is obnoxious and he needs to leave her the fuck alone but she's also flat out nasty to him in a way that really no other character in this play is like not even touchstone when he's being his most scathing, is as mean as Phoebe. And Sylvia's aside, she's actually just hella rude to everybody. Right, right. It's not personal. No, like, she's extra rude to him. But yeah, she's just not a pleasant person. I'm not sure I would be if I was being hounded that much, to be fair. Like, no. Maybe, like, slightly in her defense. Girlfriend's got reasons. Phoebe's problems are understandable, at least from a 21st century feminist perspective, when you consider just how much of a nice guy Sylvius is being. But I still find her hard to swallow, just because she is so rude to everybody she meets. At the very least, I would say it is an unusual characterization. I don't think there are many comparable characters, especially not women, um, which is kind of interesting. I don't know that we would necessarily be more tolerant if Phoebe was a man, but then she probably wouldn't have to act the way that she does if she were. So it's a little hard to say. That's true. I am always curious what, if anything, Shakespeare was up to when he wrote her. Like, is she supposed to be funny? Are we supposed to be offended by her? Are we supposed to feel for her? It's it's really hard for me to say, in part because Sylvia is so fucking annoying. <laughs> I think we're supposed to find her funny, but not because she herself is funny. Like, I realize that this situation obviously is funny because we know something she doesn't, right? We know that Rosalind is not really a dude and that she's making a fool of herself. We're very clearly, I think, supposed to be laughing at Phoebe, not with her. Right. In a way that we're definitely supposed to be laughing with Rosalind. Oh yeah, well, at every every turn, you should be laughing with Rosalind. Yeah, so for me, that makes Phoebe like a little bit sad. Like we're supposed to be laughing at this woman who really like 
doesn't know anything else and is being hounded by this asshole and her feelings don't even get to be real at the end of the play, it's a little bit strange. Shakespearean humor is always really hit or miss with me because some of it's really uncomfortable now and I would put Phoebe in that category personally. It's always awkward when you leave as you like it and you have to examine the internalized misogyny that makes you laugh at Phoebe's situation. Yeah, exactly. Well put. As long as we're dinging women for being rude, Rosalind lets her have it. She does. Those scenes are all really uncomfortable to me too. What what role is Rosalind playing in this woman's, I want to say downfall. I mean, she ends up married to a guy that she does not like. Yeah. But yeah, Rosalind, because she has so much control over everything in the play, she's the one who reasserts order at the end, as is, you know, kind of the convention for comedy. The reveal is like totally under her power. In that way, she kind of controls everyone else's fates. She and Celia go to see the Phoebe Sylvia's show because... Corin, the shepherd that they bought their cottage from, is just like, hey guys, there's some funny shit happening. And they're just like, ooh, teehee, funny shit. And they go from watching to Rosalind stepping forward and taking part in this drama with really no provocation. You get the feeling that she's just bored. She does get off one of the best insults. The insult, in fact, that the American Shakespeare Center listed as their number one Shakespearean insult. Sell when you can. You are not for all markets. That is pretty good. There are others I like better, but that is a good one. I mean, it's weird to me because honestly, I like the zinger that Orlando gets off in this play better than I like that one of Rosalind's. So I don't know how to reconcile that to the fact that Rosalind is clearly the superior character, but there we go. Orlando has a sense of humor. Yeah, you have to give him that at least. But we will get there because that seems also important to one of your ships, right? (laughs) Yes. Okay, so I think that about does it for canon ships and how we feel about them. Thank God, there's so many. So many ships. Hilariously enough, for this many canon ships, we have very few OTPs. I was going to say, now we we get to do our OTP section, but it's like two ships. Let's do the fun stuff. Rosalind Celia. Rosalind Celia. Okay, so first of all, disclaimer, I know that they're cousins and frankly, I don't really care. Shakespeare didn't really care either. No, it was a different time. It's a different time. But yeah, this is absolutely the most dynamic and fulfilling and giving relationship in the entire play. And the most interesting by far. Okay, <laughs> like nothing really comes close to them. They're both awesome. So that definitely helps. They're both really smart. Like theirs is the only matching of wits that's compelling in this play. Right. And they get one of the funniest scenes because of that um, when Celia is chastising Rosalind and it's hilarious. And she's the only person who can get away with that too because Rosalind is just head and shoulders above everyone around her and Celia is the only one who's like, but you're bullshit though. I love her, but Celia is also kind of needy. Three different times she flat out tells Rosalind, oh, you don't love me as much as I love you. That's like always the stick that she uses to get Rosalind to do what she wants is just like to love shame her. And it's a adorable and hilarious. One of the sad things about this pairing for me, though, is I think it's kind of true. I would agree. I mean, Rosalind is the one who falls in love with a guy. Right? I mean, she abandons Celia and Celia's jealousy is really apparent. Yeah. Like, tragically apparent. It's funny right up until your heart breaks for her. Right. She's not only, as we would argue, for the OCP losing someone she's in love with. I mean, she's losing the person who's her best friend. The person who she went into exile for. Yeah. 
it never strikes me as unfair of Celia to be like, hey, you know, I've done a lot for you and I care a lot about you and it doesn't always seem like you feel the same way. Yeah, no, it's absolutely justified because I think you're right. Rosalind doesn't love Celia as much as Celia loves Rosalind. Yeah, it's kind of a sad OTP. Not Hamlet sad because no one dies, but a little bit sad because it is unrequited. You could write it so that it wasn't if you were that kind of fanfic writer. And if you do have that, feel free to send it to us. Because we'd love to read it. We would. But the way that the play is written, obviously, Shakespeare excludes the possibility. And certainly for audiences of the time, it wouldn't have seemed at all a possibility that Rosalind and Celia would continue to be together after the curtain fell. No, not not even in the way that they are in the play, right? You know, they're going to go on to their married lives. And even though they've married a pair of brothers, which seems telling. God, I wonder if Celia did that on purpose. That is the first good explanation for Oliver Celia that I've ever heard. It just occurred to me that maybe Celia isn't in fact that into it, but would make life easier for continuing to be around Rosalind as much as possible, right? Oh my god. Oh, Celia, you deserve better. She deserves better than Oliver, but she also deserves better from Rosalind. Yes. Even early on, before they even get into the forest and have to deal with the love poetry and the the shenanigans and such, after Orlando wins his wrestling match, Rosalind is just like, oh my god, you're so hot. I want to talk to you some more. And Celia says, will you go, cuz? Are you done drooling over this dude now? Yeah, like step away from the hot, half-naked, oiled-up dude and come and kiss me. So yeah, that it's a little bit sad, but they're great together. Again, like Celia is the only match for Rosalind's wit in the whole play. You can kind of tell that they've been educated together. They obviously know each other very well. They're equals in every other sense. I mean, they're both the daughters of dukes. They have similar senses of humor. Very dry, <laughs> yeah. Up until Rosalind starts pretending to be Rosalind for Orlando, and then the joke is no longer funny to Celia. No, she gets tired of it. I can't say I blame her for that either. It's a weird choice that Rosalind makes. It's kind of a familiar one in Shakespeare, right? As you pointed out, the tutoring of the suitor in how to to treat you is a useful trick in cross-dressing. And Orlando is certainly a better pupil than Orsino. Yeah, that's not a high bar at all, because that bar is like lounging on the floor and listening to sad music. Being all emo. As per usual. But there's Act 3, Scene 4, when Rosalind is a little melodramatically upset that Orlando has not come at the exact time he said he would. And Celia is the one who's kind of like, yeah, he's kind of shit, isn't he? And Rosalind is like, don't you talk shit about my man. And Celia's like, okay, fine, fine, he's okay. But what about this? That was a little sketchy. It's very much in the flavor of their Act 1 banter, which makes it safer than saying, hey, hey, you, you, I don't like your boyfriend. But the emotions underlying it for Celia are very different. Because whereas in Act 1, she was confident of Rosalind's affection, in Act 3, she is not. Not at all. At this point, Celia is clearly recognizing that life is going to change now. And yeah, her position as Rosalind's favorite isn't secure anymore. And if we are talking about unrequited feelings, then that's pretty devastating. Not to mention that these wooing scenes happen when she's on stage. That's a little not cool of Rosalind to let her see all that when she knows that Celia's in love with her. Because, I mean, of course she knows. She's Rosalind. She knows everything. Yeah, that is a question for me is how much does Rosalind know about Celia's feelings? I think obviously the kinder read is to say that she might not really know or she suspects and 
doesn't want to know, but I am in the she's well aware of how Celia yeah. feels camp. It's hard to imagine a Rosalind that wouldn't realize that. I saw a production where Rosalind was not aware, not really, and was adorably giddy when she got to talk about Orlando. And Celia was just holding it in and holding it in. And then in that one scene when she explodes, she just let it out and that Rosalind was gobsmacked. It was a really interesting choice and made them both incredibly sympathetic without taking anything away from Rosalind. For my own headcanon, obviously I think that Rosalind knew because my headcanon is that they were getting up to all kinds of fun cousin business in the Duke's Palace. Hashtag cousin business. Is that the name of this ship now? Oh god, it is, isn't it? It's cousin business. <laughs> Cousin business. <laughs> oh, that's, that's pretty terrible. Uh, I should say, I mean, even if Rosalind knows, I don't think that means that she doesn't care, by the way. I don't think she's being cold about it. And in fact, I think you could read her as trying to let Celia off gently. I think that's the only way to keep Rosalind as sympathetic as she needs to be if you play her that she knows and that this has been reciprocal up until now. So, yeah, she's saying it's time to move on from this, and that should be okay to her mind. Because what Celia says, the lines that she has, once you read in the subtext that, hello, they're in love, or she's in love, is devastating. <laughs> she says, you have simply misused our sex in your love prate. We must have your doublet and hose plucked over your head and show the world what the bird hath done to her own nest. <laughs> I do love the chastising. I mean, even outside of the romantic context, right? It's pretty awesome. Right. It's the only time in the play that anyone ever seriously takes Rosalind to task. And as you said, of course, it's Celia who can get away with it. Yeah, and does it well. And to support your theory that she's trying to let her down gently, a couple lines later in that same scene, Rosalind says, I'll tell thee, Eliana, I cannot be out of the sight of Orlando. This is in Act 4, Scene 2, after a couple wooing scenes. So if you play it that Rosalind has been trying to let Celia know that we might be done with this now, that could be an explosion for her as well. Like, how are you not picking up what I'm putting down? How do you not understand? How are you missing all of the cues? I've never seen this played as a breakup scene, but I think it should be. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah, that's fantastic. At the end of it, Rosalind goes off stage and Celia says, and I'll sleep. Like, they are physically not together at the end of this scene, as well as no longer romantically together. Which is rarely true in the play. I mean, they're pretty much always together. As you pointed out, Celia's on stage for most of the wooing, which is sad and a little gross. Poor Celia. Poor Celia. To, to go back to the idea that Rosalind is trying to spare her, I was thinking too about the fact that she doesn't really want Celia to go with her when she gets exiled. You can read that as the protective instinct, certainly, and I'm sure Shakespeare meant it that way, but I would also read it as maybe it's time for us to move on from this, and this is, you know, a good a time as any. The plea that Celia makes for Rosalind, it's Celia who argues the strength of their love for each other as a reason for her father to keep Rosalind there. Rosalind's argument revolve around the fact that I'm not a traitor. I'm not trying to take your usurp dukedom from you. I'm exactly who I was when you exiled my father. This is bullshit. And Celia's arguments are, I love her. I can't live without her. Yeah, that's more than a sisterly plea. Duke Frederick says, we stayed her for your sake, else had she with her father ranged along. And then Celia says, I did not then entreat to have her stay. It was your pleasure and your own remorse. I was too young that time to value her, but now I know her. And if you want to take that in the biblical sense, have at it. I do. <laughs> 
<laughs> if she be a traitor, why so am I? We still have slept together, rose in an instant, learned, played, eat together, and wheresoe'er we went like Juno's swans, still we went coupled and inseparable. I cannot live out of her company. That seems pretty straightforward to me. Yeah. Fucking Antonio in Twelfth Night is not this blatant. And he is damn blatant. As established, he is a very gay pirate. But yeah, no, I think Celia's feelings are well established. We can read a certain amount of fuzziness on Rosalind's part. I like to think that it was reciprocated before and Orlando has changed things. I agree with that interpretation. For Celia, it is text. It's not even subtext. Mm. And you do have to go a little into subtext to pick up Rosalind's feelings. But again, as you pointed out, I think the best indicator of it is that Celia is the only person who can call Rosalind on her bullshit. And Celia is the only person Rosalind actually listens to. That's true. Well, that's what happens when you're smarter than everyone else you meet. Again, and because she's Rosalind, she knows she's smarter than everybody else in the world. And this is the person she chooses to listen to. Right. Someone she sees as an equal. She doesn't see Orlando as the same kind of equal. No, I mean, she has to teach him. That seems telling enough that she doesn't trust him to fully know what she's going to need or want and to respond accordingly to whatever may happen. I mean, she feels the need to test him. And not unreasonable. I mean, she doesn't know him that well. But she does know Celia. And he's already writing stalker poetry on the train. Yeah, it's already creepy. So <laughs> gotta bring that shit in. <laughs> But yeah, Celia can say what she wants to Rosalind. Rosalind doesn't always listen to her, but she does listen to her more than she does everyone else. You're right. There's at least a mutual respect there. She can tell also when Celia is serious. There's three moments in the play where Celia effectively changes Rosalind's mind. At the very beginning, when Rosalind is mopey and Celia is like, fucking be happy. <laughs> and Rosalind is like, okay, this matters to you. I'm going to smile and we're going to joke. Then after she gets banished, she's sad and heartbroken again. And Celia's like, do you not see where this is going? Because I see very clearly where this is going. And it's going with you and me and Touchstone into Arden. <laughs> and Rosalind does not try very hard to dissuade her because she can tell that Celia means it. <laughs> and then the last is that breakup scene where she stops joking around because she's been joking for a couple acts straight. And in the face of Celia's anger and heartbreak, she gives her honesty. You're right. If Rosalind didn't care about Celia, she wouldn't dignify that scene with the level of seriousness that she brings to it. She would probably try to manipulate her way out of it because that's what Rosalind does. Frankly, she gets other people to do what she wants. So if she didn't think Celia deserved that consideration, she would not give it to her. And Celia is the only person who gets that consideration. Yeah, no one else everyone does. Because everyone else she's playing. Oh yeah, the entire play. This is Rosalind's play. She owns it from start to finish. That's why she gets the epilogue. It is. But anyway, yeah, I ship Rosalind Celia till the cows come home. And I don't think this would do well as a threesome either. I think Celia would be the worst at sharing. Oh, she'd be furious. And I don't think Orlando would really get it. I think he would try. He wouldn't dismiss it out of hand in the way that we were talking about how neither Horatio nor Ophelia would be good sharers. Orlando would not be like that. He would try. And I think it would be Celia who put the kibosh on that one. Right. Hardcore. He also just wouldn't be able to keep up because the last thing I was thinking about Rosalind and Celia before, you know, wrap this little bit up is you can always kind of measure a Shakespearean couple, a good one, by the level of their banter. And Celia and Rosalind's is excellent. And poor Orlando would just be on the outside looking in on that one. Like, oh. participation trophy levels. <laughs> really. <Bless>. Sad. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine Celia just being like, oh, okay, you're here. Um, Go get naked and oil yourself 
up and stand in that corner so Rosalind can get hot and bothered. <laughs> no, don't move. Don't move. Your job is to stand there and watch. And look pretty. Okay. So that is our OTP singular. <laughs> you had a baby one, right? In defense of Rosalind Orlando, which we don't have to talk about for any great length, I will say that he's always better in performance than he is in reading the play. A good actor can bring a lot to Orlando. Obviously, Rosalind is an amazing role for any actress, but there's a lot already on the page. In the same way that Ophelia's level of inner life depends on the actor to reveal on stage in between the lines that they're given. Orlando is dependent on the choices of the actor and of the director. That's such a funny... Is that true in a lot of comedies, right? I hate to use this term, but for the lesser half of a major Shakespearean comic pairing, yes. Because the same is true of Orsino. Yeah, I was just thinking about how the women, not all women, at least some women get undercharacterized in the tragedy, and conversely, in the comedies, it seems to be the dudes. Some of the dudes. Which is honestly what makes Benedict such a shining example. <laughs> we'll get there. That'll be a fun one. Another bone to throw to Orlando. He's a good learner. He puts the work in. I'm honestly kind of reminded of Martha Jones in Doctor Who in the scene where he tells Rosalind that they're done with the joke when he realizes that all the flirting with this cute boy is not actually feeding the need he has for Rosalind. He's like, this will not do and it's not fair to me and it's not fair to him and I have to be done. There's a kind of dignity in that that I respect. No, I really like that point. I mean, Orlando has more self-respect than some of the other Shakespearean comedic heroes. He knows where to draw the line. His initial speech is this, like, cry for dignity, really. Which is beautiful. Like, Orlando is a hell of a character up until he meets Rosalind, and then he just gets kind of adorable and corny. The beginning of the play is this weird red herring anyway, because you think it's going to be a thing, and then it really isn't. But that's true for a lot of the plot lines, so we don't have to spend any more time on that. But anyway, I always short change Orlando and then I feel bad about it because I do enjoy his character much more in performance than I do in reading. It's really weird for me because I don't really have a problem with him and I don't have a problem with the pairing like as maybe our audience has noticed by now I'm like not always a fan of the canon pairings but in this case like I'm not bothered by it I just kind of don't care that much. Yes no exactly hit the nail right on the head. Again I think it's because there's no conflict. Yeah but yeah I mean in performance and a Rosalind and Orlando with good chemistry can make me ship it. Mm -hmm. But I do not ship it on my own. I ship Rosalind Celia on my own and a performance can change my mind for the length of that performance. But when I go back to the base text, it's like, Orlando, you are adorable and I want to hug you and give you a teddy bear and some candy. And I am all about that Rosalind Celia. Still all about it. Bring on the cousin business. No, hard agree. Even though I hate the phrase cousin business. <laughs> That's the ship. It is the only ship in this armada. The other thing is we're talking about a huge cast, which means that there are a lot of possible ships and I think one thing that happens to me personally is when there are a lot of possible ships, I kind of land on none of them. Uh, except for maybe like the rare remarkable one, which, you know, in this case is Rosalind and Celia, to my mind. You kind of get an embarrassment of riches in this play and it makes it not so fun to ship anything. Not as bad or unshippable, it's just not as much fun to ship. But that's probably a good segue to rowboats, because there are a ton of possible rowboats. All of which are somehow infinitely more fun to me than the canon ships or the potential OTPs, except for cousin business. <laughs> I'm gonna keep calling it that just to fuck with your head. Because you know it pains me every time you say it, that's why you're doing it. I know. 
no, the robots are fun. Obviously, there are as many as you possibly could want because the Duke has like a whole band of semi-merry dudes, which we haven't even really talked about, but there are a bunch of them. We're straight. Just merry. <laughs> Tights, man. A Mel Brooks reference for all occasions. Yay. Do you have any particular favorites among the minor characters? I mean, yes. <laughs> Two favorite robots that I thought of and then one that you thought of. Of the ones I thought of, I kind of ship Adam and Corin just because they're like the two old fogies on the fringes of the cast who never did anything wrong to anybody and are just really nice and both wind up in Arden and I just kind of get a kick out of them like building a cottage and living out their old age together just shaking their heads at the youths. That one did strike me as really sweet when you brought it up because they're both just decent dudes that try to help other people. I feel like there would be young people showing up at their door every so often with some ridiculous problem and they just kind of sigh and smile at each other like we got those. The advice gurus of the forest. The gay relationship experts. Yeah, godfathers of a kind. I kind of ship Jaquie's touchstone. Yeah, say more about that. Jaquie's talks about touchstone a lot. The first time he comes on screen, he's talking about how he ran into touchstone in the forest and what a wacky fun experience it is and what a character this jester is and how out of place and how ludicrous and he can't stop talking about him. I think it might be the second scene, but yes, he is obsessed. Oh, okay, fair enough. And Touchstone is an attention whore. <laughs> like, the more people who are paying attention to him and letting him run off at the mouth and do ridiculous things, the happier he is. So I think it would be this, like, endless feedback loop of, you are ridiculous, thank you for the attention. Yeah, I would read it. Headcanon accepted. And the other one is Jaquies and Duke Frederick. Oh, I can see that. You could read a lot of their interactions as flirting, couldn't you? Oh, oh no, no, I'm sorry, not not Duke Senior, Duke Frederick. Oh, you're right. Like the evil Duke. Well, I'm going to argue for the other one then. Oh. Uh, sorry, there are too many characters for me to keep straight. Haha, <laughs> I see what you did there. Pun very much intended. <laughs> My argument for Jaquies and Freddy Boy is just that there's not a scene that they have together, but Jaquies is super eager to, like, leave the forest where he's been all grumpy and mopey and run right off to that hermitage to have sweet, sweet alone time with the converted duke. Sure, you can read it that way, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I can also just see them running into each other. They're like, oh, what are you doing here? But as for Senior and Jaquies, how do you say his name, though? Honestly, I don't know about the vowel. I've heard it as an A more often. But it scans in two syllables. It scans Jaquies. I'm going to find the line to prove it. Indeed, my lord, the melancholy Jaquies grieves at that. If it's Jacques, the scan is all off. Fair enough. I'm just going to call him our melancholy bro because that's what he is. <laughs> I mean, it sounds horrible. It's like an awful, awful sounding name and Shakespeare should be ashamed of himself. But that's what it's supposed to be. We both know that he is not sorry. Not for anything. Except maybe getting the clap. <laughs> Most people would be sorry about that. So, yeah, Senior and our melancholy bro, as I will call him, have a lot of scenes together, and it's mostly Senior picking on melancholy bro. But I would argue that you could read those scenes as flirting, right? That they're both, like, well aware that they're performing for the other people and for each other, so. I could see that. I'm going to off the cuff make that argument. Okay. I haven't seen it played that way, but I think that is a fault of the directors more than the text, and that would be fascinating to see it played like that. To, yeah, because the more gayness you can bring to this play, I would argue the better it can be. Absolutely. Also, it would add like a little touch of melancholy at the end if Duke Sr. gets his dukedom back but loses his melancholy sex bro. Aww. 
Hashtag melancholy sex, bro. This isn't getting better. We're just full of bad ones this time. Other than that, I can definitely see Charles Orlando. Charles is a wrestler from the beginning of the play if you've lost him in this enormous cast of characters. And I just think anytime two guys wrestle, it should at least be up for discussion. Yes. Like how homoerotic that is. So very. There's not really much to it beyond the fact that they're like all sweaty and wrestly, but like that's plenty. Ships have been built on far less. Yes, you don't need a lot of timber to build that kind of ship. Nope, that is not really pure eye candy, and I love it. Yep, definitely for it. Also, I mean, Charles is a little worried about hurting him beforehand, so... And as previously discussed, Orlando is super hot. Super hot. So is that really what he's worried about? Hmm. It's like that scene in Sherlock where Irene is just like, oh yeah, if I was someone who loved you, I'd avoid your cheekbones too. Exactly that. And then my last one is just completely random, William and Sylvius, because I feel like they would be happier together than in their weird pining for ladies who do not want to be with them. And they'd probably be, you know, less annoying if they were getting some. So they should get some with each other. Seconded hardcore. Leave the ladies alone and just go and take care of yourselves together. Yeah, you'll have some fun. Maybe you'll learn something about yourselves and be less irritating. And not so invested in your strange version of toxic masculinity. Make like Elsa and let it go. So I think that about does it for rowboats for me. So we have a comedy, so we don't have any survivors in this play to pair up. Because you can pair up pretty much everyone. It's kind of the point of the play. Shakespeare is just like throwing characters at a wall and being like, all right, these two and these two and these three and these five. We could literally just draw names out of a hat and be like, yeah, I can see it. As you like it, Mad Libs. (laughs) Totally. So if you have a rowboat or even an OTP that you want to share for As You Like It, uh, hit us up on Twitter. We will put our details in the show notes. And I think that wraps it up for the first As You Like It episode. Yep. We'll be back next time with our problematic faves, the ships that we want to sink, and our hate sex couple of the month. This show is produced by us, Julia and Liz, as part of the Adjective Sphinx Network. The music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. You can find links for more info in the show notes. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at Adjective Sphinx or email us at adjectivesphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.